Morning. You all look good. No, oh, thank you. Um, this morning we are uh, continuing. This is our second week um, in this series. So last week we began a new series on the life of Paul. It is entitled The Life of Paul. And um, so this is week two, and so I'm going to review a little bit from week one. For those of you that weren't here, this should catch you up a little bit. And for those of you that were here, hopefully it'll remind you so you can be like right back where we, were, where we left off last week. So we learned that this character named Paul, who's in the Bible, who's one of the most like, significant characters in the Bible, um, went by a different name earlier in his life. That um, Paul went by the name Saul during the first half of his life. We learned last week about his childhood, and as I'm going to refer to him, I, I referred to him last week by Saul, and I'll be talking about him as Saul this week, and probably for a few more weeks. I don't know how long it'll be, um, but I'm just going to call him by the name that I think he went by during the time period that we're learning. And so when he was a little kid, he um, lived, and we talked a little bit about his childhood and which city or which cities he may have grown up in. We talked about the fact that he was a Pharisee, which is a Jewish religious leader that greatly respected the Old Testament as well as Jewish traditions. And we also talked about the fact that, um, like many other people of his generation, Saul rejected this new religious group that had sprouted up that we now call Christianity. However, it was called the way at the time. The word Christianity had not been invented yet. They were, these were people who followed the way, and he did not like the people who followed the way. Um, and there were a lot of people that did not. And in fact, last week, we read about an occasion where they killed one of the leaders of the movement. Okay, one of the influential people in this movement, whose name was Stephen, um, they all got together and he explained what he believes about Jesus and they stoned him to death. And Saul was there for that. And that was the first appearance of Saul in the Bible. He was the guy who actually held the robes of the people as they stoned Stephen to death. So as Stephen is um, killed and this persecution breaks out against Christianity, although it's not, that's the, not the name of it yet, but as this persecution breaks out against Christianity, um, that's where we left off last week, and so we're going to pick up where we left off. Today we're going to learn more about this persecution that Saul inflicted on the early Christians, and we're going to learn about the conversion, his conversion to Christianity. So let's go ahead and pick up where we left off last week, which would be Acts chapter 8, as far as the story that we were in, the last three verses of the story that we read were Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. So today we're going to begin with those same three verses. This is what it says. Saul agreed with putting him to death, him being Stephen, the guy they had just killed. Saul agreed with putting him to death, and on that day, the day they murdered Stephen, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So that's where we left off in the story. And if we were to pick up right where we were to leave off, and we were to go to verses 4 and 5, you would see, if you were reading in your Bible, that it's a whole other topic. That after we get to this place where it says that Saul was dragging people out of their houses and throwing them into prison, the, the, the topic changes in the next verse. And then the very next verse, it starts talking about a guy named Philip. And for the next like 36 verses, it talks about Philip. The, the scene changes. And then when you get to chapter 9, it goes back to Saul. And so what is happening in the book of Acts, there's something that is done in ancient literature that I think is pretty cool, and I did not know that it was a feature of ancient literature until fairly recently in my life. I thought it was a modern thing. Because the thing I'm about to describe to you that happens in the book of Acts, and it also happens in the book of Mark, um, and I don't know how many other places in the Bible it happens in, it's just something that I've noticed a lot, but it's, it's what we do in um, like movies and TV shows all the time. 
But what they will do is they will take a, a story and they will break it in half. Mark does this several times. Back when I was preaching through Mark is when I really noticed this. They'll take a story, break it into two parts, then take another story that happened around the same time and stick it in the middle there. And the middle story not only tells you the middle story, but it also kind of tells you that time passed between the first part of the other story and the second part of the other story. And I just think that's cool because I didn't know that that practice went back like 2,000 years. I see it on like TV shows all the time. I'm sure you do too, right? Where the, 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 they're showing a scene and then it ends and then it moves to another scene. And then when the camera goes back to this other scene, it's not the moment where it ended. Like time has moved on. Wow, you're act like, this is crazy. Have you... Like, has anyone ever watched, like, a Law & Order episode, okay? Like, you'll see the guy, and he's there in his car. I'm going to describe it now. You could have just said, mm-hmm, Pastor, we know, but now you're getting a story. So imagine you're there, and you're watching the show, and the guy is in his car, and he goes, I'm going to go down to the courthouse and take care of this, and he slams the door in his car, right? And, I'm gonna... and then it ends, and it goes over, and now there's a scene with all these other people, and they're doing their things, and then once that's done, it does not pick up with him pulling out the keys and starting the car. No. He's already driven across town. He showed up to the courthouse. He's walking up the steps. And what you're supposed to do is the fact that there was a scene stuck in the middle there is supposed to make you assume, oh, the boring stuff was during that scene, like the driving across town and, and parking the car in the parking garage and then walking over to the courthouse. Like that, that's all stuff they didn't show. It happened during the other scene. You following me? That's what's happening in the book of Acts here. Saul is dragging men and women out of their house and throwing them in prison. Then new scene, Philip. Philip, 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 for about 37 verses. I'm going to skip it because this is the story of, uh, this is the life of Paul, not the life of Philip. But then after that, that story is told, which takes place, I don't know, maybe over the course of weeks or months, it then picks up with Saul. And so here it is, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So we have this whole story of Philip, and then when we get back to Saul, what's he doing? I think what we're supposed to assume is during that whole scene of, about Philip's life, all of those weeks and months, we're supposed to assume what Saul has been doing is the same thing he was doing last time we read about him. He's dragging people out of their homes and throwing them in prison. That's what he's been doing. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But now, new scene. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus. In other words, we're supposed to, what we're, how the, I think we're supposed to interpret this is during this whole chapter 8 where it was talking about Philip, what Saul had been doing was he persecuted the people in Jerusalem. He persecuted them over and over again. He persecuted them to the point that he persecuted everybody he was going to persecute in Jerusalem. However many people he was going to persecute, he did it. And then once he was done, he decided, I'm now going to go to a new town and go somewhere else. Like, this is spreading. This, this stupid belief about Jesus, that he was the Messiah from the Old Testament, and he's come back to life, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he's reigning right now. Like, this is ridiculous. It needs to be stomped out. And the people who believe in this are not just people in Jerusalem. This silliness is spreading all over the place. And so I need to go to other towns and find the people that believe this, and I need to squash it there too, kind of like an anti-missionary, right? Which is kind of ironic if you know the rest of the story. So he decides, I'm going to go to other places to make sure that I stop this. And so he decides, Damascus is where I will go next. He's persecuted Jerusalem. Now he moves on Damascus. Damascus is a city that is about 130 miles north of Jerusalem. So that would be like Ocala to Valdosta. 
that's quite a trip back then. Like, he's not going to some nearby place. He's going to a place that's pretty far away. I mean, you might say, well, Valdosta, I can get there pretty fast. Yeah, you have a car. Going back 2,000 years ago, that's a, that's a pretty, 130 miles is a pretty decent distance away. Going up north, he's going pretty far away to find people who believe in Jesus to crush them. So he has gone to the high priest and he's asking for permission, right? He's requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus that apparently the high priest had authority over Judaism and the synagogues and the beliefs and practices of Jewish people even outside of Jerusalem and even outside of Israel. I believe Damascus was maybe in Syria. Um, so, which I don't even know what the name of the country was at the time, maybe Arabia, who cares? I study things that you don't need to know. Um, <laughs> Anyway, point is, he goes to another. Um, he, go, he goes to this other place where apparently, at least when it comes to the, the Jewish synagogues, the high priest would have some sort of sway. And so he's asking for permission um, to go there and to do what he's been doing in Jerusalem, to keep ravaging the people, to pe- keep dragging people out of their houses and separating them from their children and their parents and locking them in cages later on to beat them or kill them or whatever. And he wants to do this in Damascus. And so that's what he's doing. And there's two things that I wanted to point out about this persecution, the persecution of Saul upon the early church. The first thing I wanted to say to you is this. The persecution was wrong, even though it was authorized. That's the first point that I wanted you to get from this. And I think it's very obvious when you read the text that Luke believes this. The persecution that Saul inflicted on the early Christians was wrong, even though it was authorized by the authorities. I think you can tell that Luke believes this. He, he gives us both sides of this. Of course it's wrong, but it's authorized. He's saying Saul went in and got the permission. He got the people that were in charge to say yes. He requested letters from the synagogues in Damascus. I realize this verse doesn't specifically say that they said yes. You're supposed to, I think, assume that he successfully got the letters so that he could go to the synagogues in Damascus. But if you don't assume that, you find it out later anyway when you get to verse 14 of this same chapter. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. This is, these are words from a character that we have not introduced yet. We'll get to it in a minute, but I'm just going to read what he said. character that we haven't introduced yet says this, and he's talking about Saul, and he's in Damascus, and he says, and he has, what's the word? Authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. There were people in Damascus who had heard, big bad Saul is coming. He has been authorized right? He has been given authority from the chief priests to come and arrest us and drag us down to Jerusalem. They heard that. They knew that he had the power to do that. So going back to verses 1 and 2, when Luke talks about this, he's saying Saul had governmental or whatever the authority of the, you know, in this case, it's a religious authority, the high priest. He has the authority to do this. This is an authorized mission. This was an authorized thing to do, but it was wrong to do it. It's obvious that it's wrong to do it, right? He begins the chapter by saying Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Later on in the story, Jesus appears to Saul and rebukes him for this persecution. So the persecution was wrong. Like if you just read it from the perspective of the author, clearly Luke is saying this was wrong and it was authorized and the fact that it was authorized doesn't make it right. This is wrong even though it was authorized. And so I think that's important for us to understand because I think there are sometimes people do bad things and there is no authority figure that tell them they can do the bad things. And then we say, well, that's bad that those people did that. Like if, um, if someone were going around nowadays doing what Saul did back then, 
and they, and they were doing it unauthorized. There was no sort of government or there was no sort of authority figures that were saying, go for it. If somebody just on their own gathered up a group of people and run around and started busting people's doors in and dragging them out of their houses against their will, separating them from their families and locking them in cages and, and kidnapping them, we, we would say, that's terrible. We would usually, usually we'd use a word like terrorism, right? A group of people with no authority that just go around and start attacking people and dragging them out of their homes and kidnapping them, we would say, that's terrorism. But it seems like, and this is the reason I want to bring this up, if there's a group of authority figures that say, go for it, does that make this thing that we were just calling terrorism okay? Does, it become, does, does this wrong thing become right because it was approved by some people, or does the wrong thing become less wrong? So Mario, why are you, trying to, why are you pointing this out? I think because I think we need to understand. We need to have a biblical worldview of this when it comes to authorities and how we behave. I think Christians need to understand some things. One thing that we need to understand is that we are to respect and submit to the governing authorities. That's something that the Bible teaches. Romans chapter 13 is a famous place in the Bible where this is taught, and it's actually Saul, who later goes by Paul, who says it. He instructs Christians to not be rebellious against the governing authorities, that they, are to, that they are to respect them and submit to them because they have been ordained by God. And to rebel against the authorities is to rebel against what God has established. That's what the Bible says. That's what it teaches. <laughs> Peter, in one of his letters, actually said these words, and it's crazy when you think about it. Peter actually, there's an there's a instruction in one of Peter's letters that says, honor the emperor. I think it's 1 Peter. Honor the emperor. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but sometimes we just read the Bible, blah, 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 blah. We don't think about it. I just want you to think about it. This is a Jewish guy in the first century who believes Jesus is Lord. This is in a time period, I think, in the Roman Empire where they're getting persecuted for that. And this guy who believes Jesus is Lord is writing to other people who believe Jesus is Lord, and he says to them, honor the emperor. What? The emperor that doesn't believe Jesus is Lord? Yeah, him. <laughs> The, the emperor who believes that he is Lord? Yes. There is some amount of respect and honor we owe even him. And so I think that that's important for us to understand, that Christians are not supposed to be rebellious people. And I, I think for the most part, most of the Christians I know get that. I'm sure there are some people who don't. No, I'll do whatever I want. Who are they to tell me what to do? I do think for the most part, though, I don't hear a lot of that. Most of the Christians I know understand Romans 13, even if they don't know that it's from Romans 13. They understand we should not be a rebellious people fighting against authorities. So that's good for us to understand. Here's the other side, and I think this is also very important to understand. Wrong does not become right simply because authorities say so. And I think we forget that sometimes, which is why I use the illustration of the terrorist. When the terrorist takes people out of their homes against their will and drags them somewhere and locks them in a cage, we say that's wrong. But when people do that exact same thing with the approval of a government, it just seems like at least some of us act like that's either less wrong or maybe not even wrong. We don't use the word terrorism for it. We'll use something like that's just a strict country. That's just an authoritarian regime. Mm-hmm, it is. But, but is it bad? <laughs> is it wrong? Like, like when you were saying the terrorist ought not do that? Because just because the government has told, hey, th these people who are innocent, but they believe something different than what the majority believe, so go ahead and get them 
and harm them and attack them. I mean, this happens. This happens all over the world. It's happened throughout all of history. It continues to happen to this day. There are, as far as I know, like Muslim-majority countries that do this to Christians. There are communist-majority countries that do this to Muslims. And it's wrong. And when we look at those situations and we see that the person going in is not called a terrorist, it's a, a police officer that's going in and dragging the people and throwing them in the cage, sometimes I think we just go like, well, they're just following orders. Mm. The wrong thing does not become right just because an authority figure ordered you to do it or approved of it. I think that's, that's so clear here. Why? Because there is a higher authority than human authorities. And I think it's, it's obvious that Luke believes that. That theme comes up in the book of Acts multiple times. And in this particular issue instance, I think you can see Luke is saying what Saul is doing in this passage as he's persecuting the Christians, it is both wrong and authorized. The other thing that I want to say about this persecution is that it doesn't look like to me that everybody in authority thought that it was a good idea to go around and drag people out of their homes and jail them and beat them and treat them the way that they were being treated. Not everyone thought this was a good idea. Some people did. Apparently a lot of people did. Saul thought it was a good idea, obviously, because he was doing it. Um, the high priest must have thought it was a good idea because he authorized it. And it must be more than just the two of them because when they stoned Stephen to death, there was a whole group of people there that all did it. That wasn't just one or two people. There was a whole group of people that thought, this guy should die because of what he believes about Jesus. So there were plenty of people that thought this was a great idea. But I'm telling you, not everybody did. At least one person that I know of in the story by name is mentioned as being against this. And the guy's name is Gamaliel. And this is kind of a little-known story in the book of Acts. I was really not familiar with it until a couple of weeks ago when I was studying for this series. But it's kind of an amazing story, especially if you know what we find out later. In fact, it's something I told you last week. The name Gamaliel. Does it sound familiar to any of you? You remember last week? Yeah. We looked at, I think it's Acts 22, verse 3. Um, Saul says, I was brought up in this city, referring to Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel. The Gamaliel was the rabbi who taught Saul what he knew. He was the Pharisee. He was the religious leader that taught Saul what he knew about the Old Testament and what he was supposed to believe about God. Like His doctrine came from this guy named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel has a significant um, part in this story a little bit earlier on than this. I'm going to show it to you in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, something I think is quite interesting happens. This story takes place, I don't know, it's one page before the Stephen story. I don't know what that means in time. Maybe weeks earlier, maybe months earlier. So weeks or months before the Stephen story, you have this story that I'm about to read to you, and it's very similar. Except something happens at the end of the story that sort of changes the way that it ends. But, but before the Stephen thing ever happened, something happened almost quite like it. They had arrested these people and they wanted to kill them. But in this case, it wasn't Stephen. It was Peter and the apostles. They got Peter and the apostles together and they wanted to kill them. And, and they wanted to do the same thing that they, they did to Stephen a few weeks later. But something happened that stopped it. And that's the thing I want to read to you. So Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 27. After they brought them in... Okay, the people that got brought in, this would be Peter and the apostles. These are people that believe in the way. These are the people that believe in Jesus as the Messiah and that he rose again and they worship him. They brought them in and they had them stand before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? You guys are talking about, did, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in the name of Jesus? I could have swore we said that. And then you all went out and kept teaching about Jesus. 
after we said, don't teach about Jesus. What is going on here? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Oh, isn't that terrible? What, they, what criminals these people were. They were going around talking about what they believed. And they were convincing people voluntarily to believe what they were believing. And these people, well, you've got to stop getting people to think what you think. That's not okay. Everyone needs to think what we think. And you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and look, and are determined to bring this man's blood on us. Okay? You are determined to bring this man's blood on us. Why did they phrase it that way? Because part of their message was the Messiah came to save us, and you all murdered him. So, they can, so they're upset. They're going, you guys are going around talking about Jesus in a way we don't like because you keep blaming his death on us. To which I'm sure they were thinking, because you did it. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. This is the exact same principle I was just talking to you a few minutes ago about. I told you it's in the book of Acts multiple times. We must obey God rather than man. Keep in mind, the guy who's saying we must obey God rather than men is the same guy that said honor the emperor. So he's not against, he's not against um, obeying men, but the issue is he's going, when there comes a point where I've got to obey God or obey men, like, well, this is an easy decision. I'm going to obey the higher authority. He keeps going. He says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, right? The resurrection, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. They got to keep putting that in there. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This was a big thing. It was a big deal to them. He didn't just rise again. He rose again and ascended to heaven, and he is at the right hand of God the Father, ruling right now. That's what Peter was saying to them. It's the same thing Stephen said um, at his trial, which we learned last week, but I didn't read you every word of it, so I didn't read that part. But Stephen said the same thing. There's a part where he said, I see Jesus standing next to God the Father. And Peter says the same thing. He is right, he's the right, at the right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now look at the next verse. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. It's almost identical to the Stephen story that we looked last week. They said almost the same kind of stuff, and the same people were like, let's kill him. And the only reason that this story doesn't end the same way the Stephen story ends is because a dude in the story stood up and said, hold on a second and talked them down. And I don't know if he wasn't there when the Stephen story happened or not, but this one is different. The reason why Peter and the apostles are not the first martyrs, and in fact Stephen is the first martyr, is because somebody stood up and said something. Here it is, verse 34. A Pharisee named Gamaliel. Isn't this fascinating? A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. The men, I think, being the accused here, Peter and the apostles. Let's get them out of the room and let's us, in authority, talk about what we're going to do with these people. But let's get them out of the room. And then he said to them, verse 35, Men of Israel, be careful about what you're going to do to these men. These men that we just set outside the door so they can't hear me right now, I just want you to hear me. You guys need to be careful what you do next. I know you want to kill them. But you guys need to be very careful with what your next move is when you deal with these people. And then he tells them a little story, verse 36. He said, not long ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his partisans were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up. Now, Judas the Galilean is not the famous Judas that betrayed Jesus. Judas was just a real common name back then, like Eric or something. Okay, so this is a different guy. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. That man also perished and all his partisans were scattered. What's he doing here? He's giving them a little uh, reminder of history, a little reminder, I think, of their recent history. This is not history that we are familiar with. I bet you there's almost no one in this room that's like, yeah, when I think about history, I think about the time when Thutis rose up and Judas the Galilean. This is not something that we learn much about. I don't think we even know a whole lot about this. But it was obviously recent history for them. Like they knew what he was talking about. This probably happened within their lifetime. He's saying, listen, guys, these things happen. These Messiah-like figures rise up. And they have all these followers that follow them. And it looks kind of scary for a little while, like we're going to lose our power and things are not going to go well. But then the same thing happens every time. They die. And after they die, because that's what humans do, right, eventually, they die, and then their movement fizzles out. It happened with Thutis. It happened with Judas the Galilean. This is what happens with these people. They claim to be of God. They're obviously not really of God. And when they die, their movement ends. So with all of that in their minds, he says, verse 38, And now I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. Let them go. Quit hurting them. Quit arresting them. Quit persecuting them. Leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. So they were persuaded by him. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, this kind of thing happens. These people rise up, they have their movements, the movements fizzle away. And so if this guy, Jesus, is not really the Messiah, and we all know he's not, then this is going to die like all the other movements do. If this Jesus didn't really come back to life, and we know he didn't, I mean, we don't know where his body is, but they probably took it and buried it somewhere. If he didn't really come back to life, if he's really not from God, and we all know he didn't really come back to life, and he's not really from God, if that's the case, then this is going to die like all these movements always die. You don't need to be fighting them. You don't need to be persecuting them. Let them alone. And if, like, 1% chance this is of God, I mean, we know it's not, but let me just say, like, 99% chance this is nothing, and on the 1% chance that Jesus really did rise again, and he really is the Messiah from the Old Testament, we don't want to be fighting this movement. We don't want to be fighting against God. We won't win that battle. So either way, this is either from God or it's not, right? We know it's not, but just in case, let's, let's consider both options. It's either from God or it's not. And either way, we shouldn't persecute these people because they're either going to fall apart on their own as a movement or we're going to be fighting against God. And he persuaded them, at least temporarily, because that's why Peter and the apostles went on living. And then a few weeks or months went by, and I guess he didn't persuade them permanently, then they did everything that they were going to do that day to Stephen. Maybe Gamaliel wasn't around to reconvince them on the Stephen day, or maybe they, by that time they didn't care anymore. But that's the reason that Peter and the apostles were not killed, and Stephen was. And so the story goes on, and Gamaliel is uh, no longer listened to by the time Stephen comes along, and then by the time Saul goes around and persecutes Jerusalem, 
and then decides I need to move on to the next town. He continues to do, and this is what I want you to realize, he continues to do what his mentor told him not to do. We learned this last week. Gamaliel was the one who trained up Saul. He's the one who taught him what he knew. So when Saul went around hunting these people down, I think it's helpful for us to know his mentor did not think it was a good idea. And he did it anyway. And I'm assuming he was aware of it. This stuff all happened around the same time. He was probably there when Gamaliel made his speech, and if he wasn't, I can't imagine he wasn't close enough with him to know that that's what his position was on this. And Saul continued to do this, and I guess what I'm just letting you know is a lot of people were into it, but not everybody believed it was good. Not everybody believed it was necessary. There was at least one guy in the Sanhedrin who was saying, don't do this, be careful, and don't do this. And Saul had the option to not do it, and he rejected his mentor's advice, and he continued to move ahead. That's the persecution on the early church from Saul. Now, let's move on to his conversion. So we left off in verse 2. If he found any men or women belong to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Here's the next verse, verse 3. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, so, so got 130 miles. I'm assuming he is past the halfway point at this point. Maybe he's like almost there. Now, why is he going to Damascus? Do we, you remember where we left off? Because that's the next city he's chosen to persecute. He's going to find the Jewish people in the synagogue there that believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's going to get them. So he's going. We're going to get him. Stupid people think Jesus came back to life. He's ruling us from heaven. I'm going to show them. And that's what he's doing, and that's what he's thinking, and that's what he's doing. And then what happens? As he's traveling, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This light from heaven flashes in such a glorious, incredible way that it knocks him down. I don't know how. I don't know if it spooked his horse and the horse threw him off or if he was walking and it knocked him to the ground or what it was. But he's on the ground with light flashing and he hears this voice. This person appears to him. It's Jesus who appears to him and calls him by name twice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, of course, he's not met Jesus, doesn't even believe he's still alive, right? And so he says, this is verse 5, to the voice that he hears from the ground, who are you, Lord? Now, Lord is an interesting word to use. That is a word that in that culture could mean something as kind of generic as mister, but it's a word that was often used for God. And the fact that there is a voice and light coming from heaven, it's, he probably realizes this is a supernatural God sort of communication. And he says, who are you, Lord? And look, look at what the, the man says back. I am Jesus can you imagine if you're Saul? Who are you? I'm Jesus. Like with a J and a, and a D. Like G Jesus? Have you ever had so many thoughts come into your head at the same time you don't even know which ones to entertain first? He's sitting there and he hears that the person that, that is communicating to him, and it almost seems like the person that's communicating to him is from heaven... It's the one that they all said had died and came back to life and is reigning from heaven. And he kept saying, that's ridiculous. He didn't come back to life. He's not reigning from heaven. There is now a voice, the voice of an alive person speaking to him. And it says, I am Jesus. Do you think at this point he started considering like, maybe he's alive? I know that's what they said. At some point he must have thought to himself, 
This means the people of the way were right. And then once he realized they were right, I think you're right over here, sir. You said, "Uh uh-oh. I bet you when he thought they were right, he probably at this point went, that means the entire direction of my life is wrong. At some point, he had to have had those thoughts. And notice what Jesus says. He says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. It's an interesting way to phrase it, right? You're persecuting me, Saul. Jesus does not say, you are persecuting the the system that I came up with. Right? He doesn't say, you are persecuting my religion that I invented. He doesn't say, you are persecuting my church or you are persecuting my people, even though that's what Saul was literally doing. No, he says, you're persecuting me. Jesus so identifies with the way and his people that to attack them is to attack him. So he says in verse 6, get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. So there's men traveling with him. Obviously, if you're going to go and arrest a bunch of people, you can't do it by yourself. So he had to have a, whatever it's called, posse. Yeah, so thank you. Um, So he goes and he's got all these people because they're going to get all these people and they're going to arrest him. And so all the people are there. And what's happening? Well, they... They heard the sound, but they couldn't see Jesus as a person. So it seems like this vision that Saul has was for him. He's the one Saul was able to see what he was seeing and hear what he was hearing. And the other people that were there were not able to see and hear the same things that Saul was seeing and hearing. And yet they, there was stuff that was going on and they realized it. In other words, this, this appearance that happened to Saul here was not in, just in Saul's head. right? Because the, the people that were traveling, they heard the sound. They were like, what is this? He seems to be seeing something we don't see but we hear something is going on. This is not something just going on in his head. Verse 8, Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. He was blinded. Jesus blinded him. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. Now, Damascus is the same city he was headed to anyway, right? No change of destination. But the way they were walking in was a lot different. I think they were going to walk in like, we're getting these people, and now they're holding him by the hand, and he's walking in blind. And he said, it says, so they took him by the hand, they led him into Damascus, and he was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. I'm sure you're aware of this. Blindness does not cause you to not be able to eat or drink. So this is more than just blindness. Right? This, what was going on in Saul's life at this point was emotional. It was spiritual. These three days that he's not eating and drinking, he's probably questioning his whole life. And then verse 10, a new character is introduced. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. So when it calls him a disciple, I think that's just a way of saying um, like a a Christian, which that word hadn't been invented yet. But that's like this is someone who is a follower of the way in Damascus. His name was Ananias, and the Lord appears to him in a vision, just like he did Saul. I mean, not just like he did, because Ananias does not get blinded. Okay, so different, slightly different. In fact, he says Ananias' name one time. He says Saul's name twice. I was wondering if maybe if, God, if Jesus appears to you and he says your name twice, like, ooh, that's not good. But if he says it once, like, maybe you're fine. So Saul, Saul, like, oh, this is not good. But here it's Ananias, just one Ananias. Here I am, Lord. And look what he says back, verse 11. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. 
So he gives them specific directions on how to find exactly where Saul is. They did not have addresses back then. He could not say, put 123 Southwest Main Street into your GPS. So he did the next best thing. He says, straight street, that's a very famous street around here. Go to it, walk down it till you get to Judas's house. Again, this is, there were Judas's everywhere back then. Go to Judas's house and I want you to knock on the door and I want you to ask for a man named Saul from Tarsus, at which point Ananias is going, I've heard of this guy. I've heard of Saul from Tarsus. And Jesus says, yeah, he is praying there. Now, for those of us that know the story, we realize I'm sure he is praying, right? He is probably talking to God in all new ways and probably rethinking his whole life. And Jesus says to Ananias, verse 12, in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, that's you, coming in and placing his hands on him so that he can regain his sight. Jesus tells Ananias, I'm sending you to the house that Saul of Tarsus is in so that you will find him and lay your hands on him and heal him of his blindness. Can you imagine if you're Ananias? Let me just read what he says next so you can get how Ananias must have taken this. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Ananias had heard about this guy. He says, he says I've heard about this guy. Look, he said, many people. I have heard from many people about this man. This is the talk of the town. Those of us who are followers of the way here in Damascus, we've all heard the big terrible Saul is coming to get us that he has the authority to arrest us all and take us away from our children and take us away from our families and lock us in Jerusalem somewhere until he beats us to the point that we stop saying Jesus is the Messiah or, or he kills us. We've all heard this. We all know it's coming. We've been f- freaking out about it all week. I'm assuming they've been praying about this. God, please protect us. Please help him not to get here. Please help him not to find us. If he finds us, please help him not to be harsh on us. I don't know what they were praying for for sure but maybe for protection, maybe for safety, maybe for courage. Maybe they were just saying, you know what? When he shows up in the synagogues and says, who here believes that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament? When they, if, they, if he comes and he looks at us and he says, do you believe that Jesus is the Lord? Maybe they were praying, God, when, if that moment comes, help me to be courageous. Help me to be not one of those people that go, no, no, I don't believe Jesus is Lord. I don't know what they were praying, but they'd heard about it before he got there. I'm sure they were thinking something. And now he finds out from the Lord that Saul is blind. Can you imagine? He would be thinking, like, I'm I'm sure he wanted him to stay blind, right? I mean, don't you think he'd be, Jesus, isn't this the answer to our prayers? The guy who wants to harm us cannot see us. This is fantastic. I don't think we should, the the thing you mentioned earlier about the vision, I don't think we should make that one happen. And Jesus says, go do what I said. Look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. We'll probably come back to that as we go through the story of the life of Paul. Verse 17. So Ananias left and entered the house. And then he placed his hands on him and said, 
brother. Ooh, brother Saul. Can you imagine this? The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you can regain your sight. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. Really? Really? That's what we're doing? I'm not saying that's how he said it. He may have had his heart right before he got into the house. But you know that he had to have been thinking stuff like that, right? I mean, one pastor said it this way. Imagine laying your hands on someone who you know had been on his way to arrest you. And that he would heal him and he would say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he would call him brother Saul, like that little phrase, brother Saul, the kind of thing that I think two hours ago, he would have made, that would have made him puke. And now he did exactly what Jesus said, and he places his hands on him, and he says, regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, at once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and then he got up and was, what? Baptized. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who was baptized? Saul. Saul was what? <laughs> he was baptized. This, I think, would have been seen as accepting Jesus. This would, have him, this would have been seen as him saying, I need to be forgiven of my sins. I need my sins to be washed away, and the one who washes them away is Jesus. This would have been seen as, as, as Saul <laughs> joining the way. Verse 19, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. And what did he say in the synagogues? Look at what he said. He is the Son of God. Just think about that. The same message that he was arresting people for was now what was coming out of his mouth from synagogue to synagogue. I mean, I was just thinking about it. Just imagine this. I think this is probably true, what I'm about to say. He, this guy went around from synagogue to synagogue saying, Jesus is the Son of God. Meanwhile, he's got a backpack with him. And in it, there are letters from the high priest that give him the authority to arrest people for the thing he's saying right now. Saul changed his mind about Jesus, did he not? Saul certainly changed his mind about Jesus. Or more, more accurately, you could say, Jesus changed Saul's mind. <laughs> Jesus changed Saul's mind because this whole encounter was initiated by Jesus. This was not Saul seeking after Jesus and being found by him. No, this was Jesus finding him and changing his mind. Whew! And so I want to end by just reading you just a, two passages that come later on in the New Testament. They were written by Saul. And I just want to read them to you so you can see what a change Jesus made in his life. Because this guy, and I'm going to read to you Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. This guy who believed Jesus was not the Messiah, he did not rise from the dead, all of this talk of reigning from heaven, this is ridiculous, we've got to stamp it out. Okay? That man, about 20-ish years later, wrote a letter to a group of Christians and said this, talking about God. God demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. The same guy who I'm sure said he didn't come back to life. His body's somewhere. We don't know. 
but he didn't come back to life. And now he's saying, no, no, no. God's power was demonstrated in the Messiah by raising him from the dead, and look, and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. The same thing that Peter said when they were all trying to kill him. The same thing that Stephen said just before Saul's friends did kill him. Now Saul's going around saying, no, he, he really is ruling from the right hand of God the Father right now. And then Romans chapter 3, and remember, this is a guy who did not believe Jesus was the Savior. He was not the solution to the problem of sin. This is a guy who loved the law very much. We're going to obey all these Old Testament laws. And Jesus is not the one that saves us from our inability to obey these laws. And yet, he writes these words to the Romans. But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed. Attested by the law and the prophets, these books I've studied so much with Gamaliel. That is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. How, is, how do we get God's righteousness? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. What a difference Jesus made in Saul's life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these narratives that you have given to us as a gift. So we may know incredible things you have done in the lives of people who have come before us. And we can better relate to you even now as we can see the history of you at work. I pray that you would help us as a congregation to see the world the way you see it and act the way you want us to act in your world, especially when it comes to governing authorities that we would not be people who are rebellious against governing authorities, that we, want to, we don't want to be people that go like, well, I just want to do what I want to do. But I pray you would also help us not to be people who just go, oh, well, that's, just, that's what they said, so that's what they got to do, and that person's just following orders, and that's fine. It's not wrong because they said it's okay. I pray you'd help us to view you and your authority as higher than all else. And I especially thank you for what you did in Saul's life. I thank you that you just jumped into it and inserted yourself into it and changed him. And I thank you that you jumped into my life and inserted yourself into it and changed it. And I thank you that there are a whole bunch of people in this room that you jumped into their life. You inserted yourself into it and you changed them. And so we thank you for that. And I pray that if there's anybody here who does not yet know you, I pray that they would come to know you even today. I hope it does not take three days of blindness, but I do hope that they think through the direction of their life and turn to you. And maybe even one day go, yeah, I turned to him and I think he turned to me first. And so I pray that that would happen. We love you. We thank you for your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.